Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 2, Episode 18, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. I just uh, told Adam, our soundboard genius, uh, that we were ready, and so he always counts down through this window, and I told him, I don't have my glasses on, I'm just, I'm squinting. So he did the equivalent of large type for an elderly person with his fingers, counting down to zero. (laughs) I said three, two. He did that with his fingers. So anyway, here we are, Rick and the Beckinator, which I like to tell people that was the name of my high school band, Rick and the Beckinator. This is a new thing that I've just heard. Yeah. Wasn't it like age, what did you call AJ and the Beckinator or something like that. I don't like know. That. Well, here, here's a tip for you in your everyday life. So whenever somebody says something that is like a, uh, could be con- considered to be a really cool band name, just tell people that was the name of your high school band. So I've, I must have told people I was a member of a thousand different high school bands because when I hear things like Rick and the Beckinator, of course that was a high school band somewhere. Rick, were you in a high school band? No, I wasn't. I didn't think so. <laughs> so, so there you go. <laughs> I, I so wish I was, though. Wouldn't you like to be able to look back on your high school life and say, yeah, I was in this cool band. It was called Rick and the Beckinators. Wouldn't you like to be able to say that? I have to say this real quick. Uh, my, Women have very different aspirations. Yeah, they do. It's men are... Men are from Mars, as we've been told. So this last week at my daughter's school, she's graduating from high school. Uh, she's about to head off to college. She goes to this incredible high school, and um, they have a competition every year. Called the, she goes to Arapaho High School in Denver. They have a competition every year called Mr. Arapaho, and you have to apply to get into this. And it's not like a beauty contest or anything. It's like somebody who represents uh, a guy who represents the spirit of Arapaho, but it's basically a blown-out talent show with 10 guys doing the most ridiculous things. But one of the, one of the guys is, is a member of our small group, and he's an incredibly talented multi-instrumentalist uh, musician, and he created a song on stage using a, what I think he called a loop pedal or something. He just created beats and rhythms with different instruments and then had his machine record them and then just play them over, and then he played electric guitar to those things. I look at this guy, and my jaw was just standing wide open because I wished I was that kid, you know, but I'm not. So <laughs> Now we know everything. Now you know everything. So today we're going to explore what sounds like, I think, the worst marketing message for following Jesus ever conceived, which is, how do we waste our lives for him? Where's the sign-up list? <laughs> <laughs> As my friend uh, Steph likes to say, Jesus was the worst self-help guru ever. <laughs> He he was he was not following all of the marketing truisms that you're supposed to building his platform and all that kind of stuff. So uh, the, what this means? What what does it mean to waste our lives for him? What what if the only outcome of our relationship with Jesus was intimacy with him? What if that was it? And are we okay with that? And what about all the other stuff that? You know, televangelists and um, prosperity doctrine people say that we deserve out of this, and cutting maybe closer to the core, 
can't we at least expect the equivalent of something like the American dream if we keep our nose clean and follow Jesus and are obedient? And in return for that commitment, can't we at least expect your basic happiness in life? Or is so? And I'm going to say something that's like, oh my gosh, is, you know, did he really say that? So is happiness the highest goal in life? Well, and uh, this is immediately this this thing happens a lot um, in the young and when you're young. But there, there's this mentality: if I was able to remain a virgin until marriage, oh. then the outcome of that should be a perfect marriage. marriage. Remember the book? Uh, it was really popular when I was in college. Now the guy who wrote it is kind of denouncing his whole thing. But I can't I can't remember what it was called. Like oh, I kissed dating goodbye. Uh, yep, I kissed dating Joshua goodbye. Joshua Harris. And uh, that whole thing, and and his whole premise was, you know, if you want a perfect marriage, this is the way to do it. There's a formula. Um, And I know a lot of people who feel a little bit, like, upset, like, hey, I did that, and my marriage isn't perfect, so what happened? Well, part of this is just being human beings. I mean, uh, just naturally speaking, as human beings, we can't help but gravitate toward transactional relationships, meaning if I do this then I should expect to get this. And we can't help ourselves. It's it's almost like the gravity that we live in, even when we're not—when when we would say, no, I don't really have transi- transactional relationships. Well, it wouldn't take too much long to expose that if in one of your relationships the, that person suddenly became a real problem, like you dreaded seeing them. So uh, how how much of that relationship is based on you feeling good about what's coming back to you, that's just human. We all have that. Uh, it's not like an indictment. It's just a, a fact of our human existence. But what Jesus is after is something deeper, more beautiful, more transformative. I think there is something higher than happiness as a goal in life. It doesn't diminish the fact of what happiness means, but what if there's something more deeply fulfilling more uh, more of what makes us who we really are in life, so we feel a kind of a deep satisfaction in life. Anyway, let's, let's explore this a little bit in using this filter of what transactional relationships are. So um, let's spend a moment here just kind of uh, talking about what that is exactly. So I looked up um, traditional marriage vows, because traditional marriage vows are actually trying to get at this expectation that you would have a transactional relationship in marriage. They're, they're kind of trying to help uh, couples about to get married to make a public statement that their marriage won't be dominated by a transactional way of seeing it. So part of that marriage vow, traditional marriage vow, is to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health until death do us part. So it's saying there's no out here. If things get bad and I'm not feeling good anymore for some reason, I'm still committed. That That's the commitment we make when we get married. Most of us did when we recited these vows. It's a very non-transactional way of seeing a relationship that is very hard to live out, as it turns out. <laughs> 
I know that I often feel like, hey, if I do this, then I expect this in return. <laughs> yes. It's natural. I did the dishes, so therefore. <laughs> and it's subtle sometimes, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, we can have the inner conversation going on where we think, hey, I deserve blank because of that. We might not voice it right away, but if nothing happens and, and our payback isn't noticed very soon, it can build up and, and kind, of, kind of come shooting out at, at one point. I know another example for me is um, my daughter Lucy has a heart and a calling to special needs kids and adults. In fact, this summer she'll be going back to Camp Barnabas in Missouri for the third or fourth time. She's going to spend her half her summer before she goes to college as a staffer at Camp Barnabas, where she will be taking care of special needs adults for 23 of her 24 hours every day. It's an, it's just a, I, it's almost staggering to hear the stories about what Lucy does. But my dirty little secret is I have a difficult time relating with special needs kids and adults, and I'm around them maybe more than a, a an average person because my daughter is around them a lot, and I I always feel kind of out of sorts and not sure how to relate. And I watch my daughter relate to special needs kids and adults, and I just marvel at how she's able to build relationship with them, but I have to recognize in myself, in that in my relationships with special needs people, I don't get back what I'm used to getting back in a relationship, and so it makes it hard for me. And that's why my daughter is like a prophet in my life. She's exposing something in my life that needs to be exposed. But um, like I said, all of us gravitate toward transactional relationships. It shows up for me in my relationship sometimes with uh, special needs people. So so Becky, can you think of some more like everyday examples of what transactional relationships look like or feel like or when we run into this kind of thing? Well, I think we obviously anytime we go out of our way to do something for someone else, we have a natural tendency to expect gratefulness back for that, appreciation um, back for that and and you know for it to be <clears throat> to be treated well and with respect because we went above and beyond that's not natural but what I actually see a lot of times in women in general in my friendships and relationships is that we we sometimes feel more comfortable being the one doing um, for others and we have a hard time when people do for us hmm. we feel like oh now I owe like my bank, is in a deficit and I need to pay that back to that person. And and for that reason, it, it's almost, in fact, I have a friend right now who is just has so much stuff that is bearing her. And I'm watching her just run around having to do all of this stuff because of, of things that are going on in her life. And I, I said to her, I said, I really am praying that someone who has time will just step up and volunteer to be like a personal assistant for you right now, that they would be like, hey, I can take on these tasks for you. I can drive um, to these things and pick you know, pick people up and bring them here or et cetera. And the look on her face wasn't like, yeah, that would be awesome. It was more like, I would feel like I owe so much, you know? And, and so I think for women, we just have a hard time accepting help. So sort of the opposite transaction, we, we create these banks in our mind that really don't exist. Uh, I, I really love the way you flipped that because we've all met people 
who can't stand to have their bank account in debt to someone else, mm-hmm. it's extremely uncomfortable. I for have them. a hard time with it. I'm I'm very uncomfortable with people doing stuff for me. I'm I'm always the first to jump in if there's something that needs to happen or if I can help out, but it's it's uncomfortable for me to have to accept help from other people and it's it I think it is because of the transactional mindset. You're just like I don't want to be a burden, you know. I don't want to have to, you know, be a burden to someone else. Yeah, and and this fits under, you know, our month of focus on uh, pursuing God's will because so what if pursuing God's will does not lead you into a life of rewards in the way that we typically think about it? Um, then did you miss God's will? Did you miss the treasures or gifts that he has for you? What it gets back to the fundamental nature of what it means to pursue or follow Jesus in our life, and what what are we expecting to to get out of that? And I say that not, again, as an indictment, it's just human. It's We're wired this way to think that if we do something, we should expect something back, or if somebody does something for us, like you're saying, Becky, we don't want to be in debt to them, so we want our account to at least be equal, or preferably our account is higher yeah. than the other person. Oh, for sure. That's way better. <laughs> that's way better if my account is the one that's... It's <laughs> yeah. so good. So I want to tell a story that uh, kind of started us thinking about this in the first place, and it happened to me last summer when Becky and I were at the Simply Jesus gathering at a ranch in Colorado, which... This is one of my favorite stories. Uh, this is one of my favorite Rick moments. And by the way, <laughs> we were up at a ranch, and Rick and I still like barely knew each other. We hadn't even started this podcast. I, I got to meet Rick's wife, Bev, for the first time, but we're up at this Simply Jesus gathering, and we're still kind of like new friends. Yeah. <laughs> And that, wow, and that seems like a long time ago now, doesn't it? It does. By the way, we want to encourage you to uh, check out the Simply Jesus Gathering. They are close friends of ours. They're, Carl Madera started this group um, uh, many years ago, probably f- five years ago now, and he has some of the most extraordinary people come from all over the world to speak at this, and typically they do it without getting paid, and some of them pay their own way to come. Uh, he's had N.T. Wright there, he's had Philip Yancey, he's, uh, I mean, it's it's a really incredible gathering of people. And it's not just the, the, the draw, the quote-unquote draw here is not just the speakers that you'll listen no. to, it's the community of uh, kindred Jesus followers that are there, the people who are ruined by and for Jesus, and we would use in our language here on the podcast, they're pigs, that, in which yeah. it, that means that they're all in. And if you don't know why a, uh, we use the word pig in reference to being all in, then um, maybe you could read the Jesus-centered life, because as Becky... Chapter is, five. Chapter, Becky even knows the chapter number, <laughs> and I, I don't know it. But um, So read it, and then that'll make sense to you. But it's kind of a, a gathering for people who are all in. And it's very different than what you would normally think of a conference. Well, there are times... Um, that you sit and listen or go and attend like a class, um, there's a lot more time where you're sitting around relaxing, talking about Jesus, talking about the world, and playing horseshoes, sitting at the campfire, resting. So it, it's, it will feel like a vacation and eating like delicious barbecue yeah, and for it, three days. Becky mentioned the campfire. and, and Barbecue my, people. And, barbecue people. My story happens around the campfire. So last week, uh, last year, um, at the end of one of the evening sessions, Carl said, hey, we're about to 
have our campfire gathering. So if you want to just hang out around the campfire for a while, don't feel like you need to to go back to your... Some some people camp out on the grounds in tents, and some people uh, stay in motels nearby. And so he, he said, you know, if you don't want to go back to your tent or your motel right now, just hang out by the campfire for a while. And uh, Brad Corgan's going to be playing at the campfire. So in that group of people, I would say maybe 99.9% of them had no idea who Brad Corrigan was. He just sounded like campfire guitar guy. The There's a guy who's going to play guitar at the campfire. Well, I didn't know Brad was coming to the event until, until Carl said that. I, I'm friends with Brad, and I met him through my church years ago, and Brad is one of three members of a band called Dispatch. Dispatch is maybe the most popular independent band in history. Uh, they were together for a long time, and when they decided to uh, break up about five years ago, um, their uh, farewell concert was in Boston at an outdoor venue called the Hatch Shell, and they attracted 110,000 people to their farewell concert. They're kind of a jam band that people all over the world absolutely love, but they're not a mainstream kind of band. They're just mega successful as a band. And and all of a sudden, I know a guy who's in one of the most popular uh, rock and roll bands in the world, and you would never know it because Brad is a remarkable person. So I hear that Brad is going to be playing his guitar at the campfire, and the only reason he came to the gathering, he wasn't there to speak, even though he's involved in this incredible ministry in a trash dump in South America or in Central America, even though he was not there to speak, he was there to play his guitar for one night at the campfire. It was extraordinary. So I thought, oh, I got to go hang out at the campfire. Bev wanted to go home, so Bev and Becky went back to the motel, and I hung out at the campfire. Um, and so I'm sitting there, and there's about probably 30 people sitting around the campfire, and Brad's kind of getting his guitar ready, and um, he forgot his pick, so he asked if anyone had a pick on them, and I, I thought, you got to be kidding me. And this woman had a guitar pick in her pocket. I don't know why, but so she gave him she gave him his her guitar pick, and people are just talking. They're just chatting around the campfire, and Brad starts playing, um, and, and then he starts singing, and people are still just talking. Um, he, they're treating his music like it's background music to their conversation, and I'm sitting about 10 feet from him, and I'm staring at him thinking, oh my gosh, there are hundreds of thousands of fans around the world who would have killed to be sitting 10 feet from Brad Corrigan at a campfire listening to him sing, but the people around this campfire, quote-unquote, don't know who he is. He's just guitar campfire guy. And so I, I was just struck by the extraordinary moment that this was, that people were literally ignoring everything he was doing <laughs> because he was just guitar guy. And uh, But Brad is also extraordinarily talented. So over the length of time, people began, began to slowly listen to what he was doing, and they kind of got in closer into a closer circle, and I kind of scooted in closer as well. Brad seemed oblivious to all of this. None of this like background music dynamic even mattered to him at all, it, it, apparently. I mean, he just kept doing his thing. And uh, after about 45 minutes of this, 
I was tired, and Brad was in the middle of... One of the things Brad does is he creates songs on the spot. So he was looking at the expanse of stars in the mountain air, and he was just creating song, a, a melody and lyrics on the spot as a, a kind of a worship song to God. And he was about 10 minutes into this, and I thought, I, I'm, I need to go back now. It's time for me to go home. And so it's pitch dark in the mountains, and I'm walking away from this campfire, listening to this in the background, and I felt Jesus put his hand on my back almost and say, stop, stop before you get any further away. I want you to pay attention to what happened here tonight. So I said, okay, Jesus, what? What is it you want me to pay attention to? And he said, right there, what Brad did right there, that is a prime example of my heart, and I want you to drink it in. And I said, tell me more. And he, and what Jesus said to me uh, really did change my life. He said, Rick, remember the parable of the 99 sheep. You leave the 99 on the hill to go after the one. That is my heart. And what Brad did tonight was he left the 99 on the hill to go after the one. And if only one person listened and was blessed and drawn to me by his expression of his gift, then that is worth it. And what Brad was communicating is, um, if only one person listens to me tonight and doesn't quote-unquote know who I am, that is worth it. And Jesus said, Rick, if you want my heart, that's the kind of heart you're going to have to hunger for. That's the kind of heart you're going to have to live out. That it, what matters to me are the ones, not the 99s. I'm after the ones. Now, this was life-changing for me because if you're um, an artist of any kind, if you're a musician, if you're a writer, if you're um, uh, uh, you know, a kite flyer, if you're—there's uh, art embedded in so many pursuits in life. If you're a marketer, like uh, Becky is, that's an art form. There are so many things that are art forms because they require vulnerability and risk on our behalf to put ourselves out there. So I'm— I'm an artist in, in a, a number of different arenas. One of them is I'm a writer, so I write books. And writing books, the way I write them, is an extremely vulnerable thing to do. And it can be hard when uh, you write a book and ask any author how, how often they check their Amazon rating and things like that, because it's a vulnerable thing to put out there, and you're wanting feedback. And it can really leverage you and and really even crush you. I remember after uh, I wrote my uh, first book for a kind of a wider audience, which is called Sifted, and I had just poured myself into it, and it didn't sell nearly as well as I thought it, it, it was supposed to, and just the disillusionment that comes when you've poured yourself into something and you look at it and you say, I think this is a beautiful work of art, and yet... It, it languishes. Not many people know about it. So I think Jesus was directly targeting that kind of transactional thing that, that happened in my heart, and he was upending the, the transactional rhythm with, even with this parable. You would think you would care more about the 99. There's more of them. And Jesus was trying to say, no, I care about the one. This is called Jesus economics. <laughs> he cares about the little he cares about the individual. He's trying to say the individual is of uh, unestimable value, and each person is a, a huge treasure 
And I, I want to emphasize, this is Jesus, I want to emphasize how important the one is over the 99. And so for me, it was, well, Rick, if you wrote Sifted for one person who is locked in darkness, and this book brought them light and hope, is that enough? Is that okay? Is it all right if I took you through this journey all for the sake of one? Or is it not okay? When does it get okay, Rick? At what level will you say it was all worth it? So all of this was happening to me, standing there in this dark field, and I realized what he was doing to me. He was, he was turning over the tables in my own temple, you know, that where he turns the tables of the money changers in the temple. He was doing that inside of me. He was pitching over the tables to get my attention. He was trying to say, remember what, I'm, what, what you just experienced tonight. Um, and, and he goes even further, you know, Jesus says things like, uh, he points out the widow's might as she puts her penny in the pot and says, hey, everybody, look at what she did. She gave it all. Or he talks about the little mustard seed that's planted and grows up into a huge tree, or the salt that seasons the whole thing, or a little bit of leaven leavens the whole loaf of bread. He's over and over trying to help us understand, hey, this is what my heart's about. I'm after the little, not the big, because the little thing can change everything. And in our life, called to follow him, maybe it's the little things, the little miracles of our day that really change our lives and change the lives of others. So let's talk a little bit about what this whole idea of wasting your life was. Was Brad wasting his talents at a campfire with 30 people at it, where most of the people weren't listening to him for most of the night? Was that a waste to bring Brad Corrigan, member of one of the biggest rock bands in the world, to an event like that where people didn't really know who he was and have him play at a campfire? Or is, was there something holy and beautiful about that quote-unquote wastefulness. So, Becky, when you think about examples of waste in life, what, what kind of pops into your head? Well, when you work in new product development, <laughs> <laughs> my coworkers are already with me. When you work in new product development, you can spend an entire year or two years or six months or three months pouring your heart and soul in doing your absolute best work and then the whole project can get killed in a night and it can feel like, wow, was that all wasted? Was that just a waste of, you know, our best efforts and all of that time and energy and passion that goes into it? So for those of you out there in careers, I'm sure that you have lots of moments that you could talk about where you feel like I went all in and I did my best work I've ever done and then they changed directions or something happened and it was just wasted. Um, but you know, in my, my personal life, I'm infertile and infertility is a huge waste. Hmm. Um, it is a huge waste of, of someone who would be a great mom who loves kids, who absolutely adores them. And it, and then you just have this huge wastefulness of, wow, okay, well, it kind of feels like, wow, my whole life is really going to be wasted because it's not just the kids you're going to miss out on. You're going to miss out on the grandchildren too. And you worry about like, well, who am I even going to hang out with? Like when I get super old, <laughs> I'm going to be old by myself. <laughs> that pro I know that won't happen. Not to me at least, but infertility is a huge waste for people who are struggling with that or have gone through that. 
um, I'm sure that you can identify with that. Hmm. Yeah, that uh, there are so many of these areas of our life, even when you bring this up, if we talk about waste in this way, it's painful. Mm-hmm. It has an edge to it. It's like, it's not supposed to be that way. And it's the supposed to be that way yeah. that reveals what's really going on inside of us. Again, not as an indictment. This, Jesus understands our frame. He understands how we think. I'm thinking about a couple of examples from the Old Testament that kind of help flesh this out a little bit. Um, one is from Second Samuel 24, when um, David um, got, uh, is going to go build an altar to the Lord, and they, they want to build it on this uh, threshing floor of a man named Aruna the Jebusite. And so they, they want to go and buy this threshing floor because this is part of Aruna's income. So, of course, they're going to buy it from him so that they can build an altar on it. And so um, Aruna says this back to David, "'Take it, my lord the king, and use it as you wish. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and you can use the threshing boards and ox yokes for wood to build a fire on the altar. I give it all to you, your majesty, and may the Lord your God accept your sacrifice.'" And David says, "'No, I'm going to buy it. You can't give this to me.'" I will not present a burnt offering to the Lord my God that has cost me nothing. Hmm. So Jesus insists on paying Aruna for his threshing floor. Now, this is a fascinating interchange, and what David is, is, is saying is, um, I'm, I am not going to give to God anything that doesn't cost me. And you're starting to get at some of this supposed to in us, because that's a cost, when we feel the edge of cost in our relationship with him, in a, in a way, it's part of the same heart that David is responding with here, is following you is costing me here in my expectations and even my hopes and dreams. It's costing me something, and there's part of us that says, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> it's It's part of my worship. It's actually the most concrete form of my worship is that I'm willing to accept the cost of my unrealized dreams or expectations in in the service of my love for you. David is really saying, I've experienced and tasted God in such a way that whatever I give to him, I want it to personally cost me somehow, because that's part of what I can offer him back as as uh, indicative of my love for him. And I love this example. Actually, a, a good friend of mine is one of the ones who brought this up. And, you know, we were talking about just this whole idea of just feeling. And I know that most people probably will identify this. There are times in your life where you just feel like I'm giving everything that I have and I'm doing absolutely everything I can. And it just doesn't seem like it's going anywhere. And, and she just said to me, what if God wants to waste you? Mm. What if he wants you to give your absolute best for your whole life and he's just going to waste it? And that is what Old Testament sacrifice was. You went and you found your best cow and you gave it on the altar to basically be wasted. Mm. Um, and what if, what if God wants to waste us and, and how can we, can we handle that? And, and, I know that that probably sounds kind of harsh, but actually when she said that, I was like, oh, that's actually kind of a relief Mm. because I feel like, oh, I must be doing something wrong. But Mm. actually, what if it's okay if I just keep giving my best and it it is wasted? 
Yeah, and because it's in the act of the offering that the real profound thing... Again, think about the widow putting her pence, her two little pennies in the pot. What was Jesus focused on there? Not the amount of money she gave, but the act of the offering. She offered all. Is it really significant that she put two pennies in there? Is it going to help buy anything for the temple? No. It's insignificant on every level except for the fact that she gave all. And this is what Jesus wants to point out that he values so deeply. You know, another quick Old Testament example is in, is in the book of Job, um, such a hard book to read because of what happens to Job, and, and that this is, in the context of Job, this is one of the stories I go after in my book Sifted about God essentially gives permission to Satan to mess with Job. That, that's the truth. <laughs> How can that be? So Job's story, though, starts off before it get, things get really, really bad. Job, in the midst of it, says, uh, to, in answer to his critics, hey, if God slays me, I'll still love him. And those words come back to bite for Job, because things do get worse. And in the end, like he has extraordinary patience as his life is dismantled, but in the end it finally boils over, and he raises his fist to God and basically says, how could you let this happen to me? And for three chapters in Job, God's response to that raised fist is simply to describe himself. It's a remarkable answer to Job's raised fist. Here is who I am. And at the end of that long string of description, Job is, is sort of silenced, and uh, here's what he says back to him. I'd only heard about you before, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Wow, what a moment. Um, Job is now living out what he had said previously, though he slays me, I will love him. In the midst of all of this, Job says, now I see you, and you're beautiful, and I'm just going to be quiet now. Um, so these are stories that that really get at the transaction that lives inside of us, and uh, I think I'd like us to to uh, focus um, on the on the final portion of the podcast here. Focus on an unusual story here in Second Corinthians that Paul recounts in his letter to the Corinthians. This is about Paul and his thorn in the side. So I'd like to just read this section, and then Becky and I will talk about this a little bit, but. As I read, think about um, what's happening with Paul here, and the, I, I'm reading uh, some context to this so that you get inside the mind of Paul as he leads up to this encounter that he has with Jesus. So um, he's, he's telling the Corinthians about kind of his resume, his pedigree, and, and he says, starting in verse 11, I mean, starting in chapter 11, verse 21, here's what he says, but whatever they dare to boast about, I'm talking like a fool again here, I dare to boast about it, too. So are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Well, I know I sound like a madman, but I've served him far more. <laughs> I have worked harder. I've been put in prison more often. I've been whipped times without number and faced death again and again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes, which is like one short of death. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and robbers. i faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. i faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And i faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. 
I have worked long and hard, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold, without enough clothing to keep me warm. And then, besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak without me feeling that weakness? Who is led astray and I don't burn with anger? He's saying, look, people, I got it going on. I mean, you do you have a resume that can outdo mine? Come on. Paul's so intense. He, he he's also he's funny. I mean, I, I think this is so funny. He he goes he goes at the start, I'm talking like a fool here. I know I'm over the top. He he would say to you, Becky, I know I'm being intense and I'm doing it on purpose here. I'm gonna dare to boast about this for a second. I'm gonna sound like a madman, but um so he, he just unleashes. Hey, if you have something to boast about, look at me. I have way more than whatever you put on the table. Then he continues in 2 Corinthians 12. This boasting will do no good. <laughs> Here's so, so much fun. It's so funny. This boasting will do no good, but I must go on. <laughs> I reluctantly tell about visions and revelations from the Lord. I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. Only God knows. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside my body, but I do know that I was caught up to paradise, and I heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words, things no human is allowed to tell. So Paul's telling about this epic, gargantuan experience he has. He's not getting specific about it, but he's saying, look, 14 years ago, I was caught up into this place, and I heard things you wouldn't believe. They're so big that I'm not even allowed to talk about them. And then he says, that experience is worth boasting about, (laughs) but I'm not going to do it. I will boast only about my weaknesses. If I wanted to boast, I'd be no fool in doing so because I'd be telling the truth. (laughs) He's so funny. He's out there. But I won't do it because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message, even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God. So to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. So three different times I begged the Lord, and he's talking about Jesus here, three different times I begged Jesus to take it away. Each time he said, "Um, Paul, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So, now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when, I'm re- when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the perfect American Christian dream. Did you hear that story? You guys, this is the perfect American Christian dream right here. Say more. What do you mean? I mean, I see white picket fences and 2.5 children right here. <laughs> this is this is what this is the promise from Jesus of what our life is going to really be like. <laughs> yeah. Yay. <laughs> and and as and you're as you're living that life, we can celebrate that. Yeah, the this thorn that you beg him to take away that he won't. And this is like such a raw emotional story from Paul. This is as honest as it gets on both sides of the coin here. He's honest about the reality of what his resume looks like and he's brutally honest about this thing that he feels like is holding him back, this thing that shouldn't be there, right? So this shouldn't have happened this way. I've done all this stuff, 
Why do I have this thorn? Take it away. My resume demands that you take it away. Actually, it's getting in my way. And Jesus' response is so profound to him. He says, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Wow. So what he's saying is, hey, Paul, it's kind of good that you have this thorn, because Paul is self-aware enough to know, I could really get proud here, and I could feel really on top of things, and I could separate myself attachment-wise from Jesus, because I kind of don't need him. And Jesus tells us, if you abide in me, then my life will flow in you, and you will have everything I have. But if you don't abide in me, you cut yourself off from those things. And what Paul is saying here is he's recognizing that pride will cut him off from his source of life, and Jesus has allowed something to stay in his life that keeps him dependent and attached to him so that his power can flow through Paul. And I think Paul's being totally honest here. He says, now I'm going to boast in my weaknesses, because what those weaknesses leverage in me is a continual abiding in Jesus, and that's where the power of this life comes from. So I started out talking about how, is there something higher than happiness in our life? And I think Paul is indicating here, yes, there is. It's the experience of having the power and presence of Jesus flowing through you. There is nothing like that. And whatever Paul saw in his seventh heaven, or whatever the heck that was, that experience he had that is too beautiful for words, I think it has something to do with the power of the presence of Jesus moving through you, and and you experience that kind of intimacy, that kind of oneness with him that transcends happiness. I don't even know if we have a human word to describe what that's like, and maybe that's why Paul couldn't describe what that's like, because happiness shoots too low for a feeling like that. Anything else stick out to you in this whole progression, Becky, about... No, it's just such a great story. It's a good, good, good reminder for us as we are, you know, plodding along with Jesus. And, you know, a lot of times we can feel like if things are going bad, that he must not be on our side or we must not be doing this right. And it's a good reminder that this could be just life. Yeah, And what if the great, great prize in life is uh, this this kind of this kind of oneness with Jesus the sense that and you just mentioned perseverance the sense that you persevere not because you should not because uh, of your own strength but you persevere because you're caught up you're caught up in an intimate relationship with Jesus and that fuels your path forward so much so that you might borrow a guitar pick from somebody around the campfire never introduce yourself and play music to nobody who to to people who aren't listening to you while you know in your reality that in a week or two you're going to be playing in front of 20 or 30,000 people yep. who are screaming and paid $100 a ticket to be there you know that inside and you play your guitar with all of your heart because you're playing for the ones not the 99s maybe what this leads to in the end is what Paul was trying to describe you reach this point where the transaction doesn't matter so much to you anymore. It's just uh, bubbling over in you, 
into the kind of re- uh, relationship that, that Jesus often describes, I and you, you and me, bride and bridegroom, branch and vine. He wants something way beyond a transaction. So we have a really great friend, Cami Gilmore. She Yay, works Cammie. with us. I'm a co-host with her on a different podcast called They Say Podcast, and she is just an embodiment of just being who she is. She's kind of a beautiful mess. And um, she makes people feel like real good about where they are. And her writing is so brutally honest. And she writes in particular to an audience of parents who are letting go of their kids and sending them to college. And it's a, it's a very identity crushing time for both the kid and the parent. It's just, you don't know as a parent, what is next for me? They don't know what's next for them. And so she wrote a book. It's, she has, she has launched, as she says, um, a few kids into the world already and gone through the pain and learned some things the hard way. And, and, and now she has adult children that are married and she looks back and goes, why was I so freaked out? And so she shares her journey, her story in this book called release my grip or release your grip. And it's available. Um, now we'll put a link in the description. It's also on Amazon. Um, and it's a great gift. If you're in the graduation season, maybe, you know, someone who's, um, sending their kids off, um, into the world. This is a this is a real encouraging book. Yeah, and it was just released on Monday. this this Monday. And I have to say, it it is a brilliantly written book, and it's also a raw book, and it fits exactly with what we're talking about yeah. because even the title "Release My Grip" means you release. Yeah, what she's what she's talking about is you release your kids because uh, and and you give up the right to the transaction. Yep. You give up the right to get back from them at some point. You release them into the world as an act of selfless giving. And what is the messy, raw path to that? It's a powerful book. Um, I, re- I really encourage you to pick it up. Cammie also writes on um, soulfeed.com. And also, uh, if you find her on Facebook, uh, if you're in that stage of life, you need to find Soulfeed. Yeah. She is incredible. Amen to that. And uh, by the way, we read out of uh, the Old Testament today in Job, and uh, just just as a reminder that um, uh, uh, I'm, I'm the general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible, and our team produced this as a Bible that would help orient and orbit people around Jesus in both the New Testament and the Old Testament, and we did something that had never been done before in a Bible before. We created, uh, Ken Castor and I, a friend and academic, created something called the Blue Letters in the Old Testament, where we went through the entire Old Testament looking for places that pointed to Jesus, and we highlighted those places in blue lettering, and then we wrote little blue caption boxes next to each one to, de- to, to describe the connection. And we had to limit ourselves to about 700 of these because the Bible would have gotten too big. So we had to take our foot off the accelerator. We found so many of them. But uh, I, I wanted Becky to read one that just randomly appears in that section of Job that I just mentioned. So what's that one about, Becky? So red letters in the uh, New Testament represent what Jesus said, the words that he said. In the, in, so the Jesus-centered Bible, we have blue letters in the Old Testament that represent something in the Old Testament that's talking about Jesus. Yep. So this is from Job chapter 38. The blue letters say, Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you. This is this is and God's lead-in response to answer Job. Them. <laughs> um, and so the sidebar of the blue letter explains the context of why this relates back to Jesus. So God answers Job's, Job's long and understandable 
complaint by exposing his ignorance of who God really is. God spends the next several chapters simply describing himself. It is difficult for us to understand God in our own strength, but Paul says no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit, and we have received God's spirit the spirit of Jesus, so we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us, which is from 1 Corinthians 2, 11 through 16. Yeah, so it's that, oh, I love how beautiful that is. So the Holy Spirit really is the one in us now describing God, the nature and characteristics of God. He helps us to understand the beauty of him. So, um, gang, we mentioned also the Simply Jesus Gathering this summer. It's in July. Uh, I encourage you to go to simplyjesusgathering.com. Uh, to check that out, and uh, we would love to see you there. We'd love to have a little gathering pigs there at the Simply Jesus Gathering, so if you can make it, that would be great. Uh, we, and please let us know if you do decide you want to go, let us know so we can meet up when we're there. Hey, thanks for listening today. Uh, remember, you can find out more information about everything we talked about today, uh, and, and in some further detail, too, at thejesuscenteredlife.com. You can find our podcast section in Season 2, Episode 18. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts, and we'll talk again next week. Bye.